Chapter 13 of an Essay on the Principle of Population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. An Essay on the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter 13. Error of Mr. Godwin in considering man too much in the light of a being merely rational. In the compound being, man, the passions will always act as disturbing forces in the decisions of the understanding. Reasonings of Mr. Godwin on the subject of coercion. Some truths of a nature not to be communicated from one man to another. In the chapter which I have been examining, Mr. Godwin professes to consider the objection to his system of equality from the principle of population. It has appeared, I think clearly, that he is greatly erroneous in his statement of the distance of this difficulty, and that instead of myriads of centuries it is really not thirty years, or even thirty days distant from us. The supposition of the approach of man to immortality on earth is certainly not of a kind to soften the difficulty. The only argument, therefore, in the chapter which has any tendency to remove the objection is the conjecture concerning the extinction of the passion between the sexes, but, as this is a mere conjecture, unsupported by the smallest shadow of proof, the force of the objection may be fairly said to remain unimpaired, and it is undoubtedly of sufficient weight of itself completely to overturn Mr. Godwin's whole system of equality. I will, however, make one or two observations on a few of the prominent parts of Mr. Godwin's reasonings which will contribute to place in a still clearer point of view the little hope that we can reasonably entertain of those vast improvements in the nature of man and of society which he holds up to our admiring gaze in his political justice. Mr. Godwin considers man too much in the light of a being merely intellectual. This error, at least such I conceive it to be, pervades his whole work, and mixes itself with all his reasonings. The voluntary actions of men may originate in their opinions, but these opinions will be very differently modified in creatures compounded of a rational faculty and corporal propensities from what they would be in beings wholly intellectual. Mr. Godwin, in proving that sound reasoning and truth are capable of being adequately communicated, examines the proposition first practically, and then adds, quotes, Such is the appearance which this proposition assumes, when examined in a loose and practical view. In strict consideration, it will not admit of debate. Man is a rational being, etc. End quotes. Book 1 Chapter 5, in the 3rd edition, Volume 1, page 88. So far from calling this a strict consideration of the subject, I own I should call it the loosest and most erroneous way possible of considering it. It is the calculating the velocity of a falling body in vacuo, and persisting in it, that it would be the same through whatever resisting mediums it might fall. This was not Newton's mode of philosophizing. Very few general propositions are just in application to a particular subject. The moon is not kept in her orbit around the earth, nor the earth in her orbit around the sun, by a force that varies merely in the inverse ratio of the squares of the distances. 
To make the general theory just in application to the revolutions of these bodies, it was necessary to calculate accurately the disturbing forces of the sun upon the moon, and of the moon upon the earth. Until these disturbing forces were properly estimated, actual observations on the motions of these bodies would have proved that the theory was not accurately true. I am willing to allow that every voluntary act is preceded by a decision of the mind, but it is strangely opposite to what I should conceive to be the just theory upon the subject, and a palpable contradiction to all experience, to say that the corporal propensities of man do not act very powerfully, as disturbing forces in these decisions. The question, therefore, does not merely depend upon whether a man may be made to understand a distinct proposition, or be convinced by an unanswerable argument. A truth may be brought home to his conviction as a rational being, though he may determine to act contrary to it, as a compound being. The cravings of hunger, the love of liquor, the desire of possessing a beautiful woman, will urge men to actions, of the fatal consequences of which, to the general interests of society, they are perfectly well convinced, even at the very time they commit them. Remove their bodily cravings, and they would not hesitate a moment in determining against such actions. Ask them their opinion of the same conduct in another person, and they would immediately reprobate it. But in their own case, and under all the circumstances of their situation with these bodily cravings, the decision of the compound being is different from the conviction of the rational being. If this be the just view of the subject, and both theory and experience unite to prove that it is, almost all Mr. Godwin's reasonings on the subject of coercion in his seventh chapter will appear to be founded on error. He spends some time in placing in a ridiculous point of view the attempt to convince a man's understanding and to clear up a doubtful proposition in his mind by blows. Undoubtedly, it is both ridiculous and barbarous, and so is cockfighting, but one has little more to do with the real object of human punishments than the other. One frequent, bracket, indeed much too frequent, end bracket, mode of punishment is death. Mr. Godwin will hardly think this intended for conviction. At least it does not appear how the individual or the society could reap much future benefit from an understanding enlightened in this manner. The principal objects which human punishments have in view are undoubtedly restraint and example. Restraint are removal of an individual member whose vicious habits are likely to be prejudicial to the society an example by which expressing the sense of the community with regard to a particular crime, and by associating more nearly and visibly crime and punishment, holds out a moral motive to dissuade others from the commission of it. Restraint, Mr. Godwin thinks, may be permitted as a temporary expedient, though he reprobates solitary imprisonment, which has certainly been the most successful, and, indeed, almost the only attempt towards the moral amelioration of offenders. He talks of the selfish passions that are fostered by solitude, and of the virtues generated in society, but surely these virtues are not generated in the society of a prison. Were the offender confined to the society of able and virtuous men, he would probably be more improved than in solitude. But is this practicable? Mr. Godwin's ingenuity is more frequently employed in finding out evils than in suggesting practical remedies. Punishment, for example, is totally reprobated. By endeavouring to make examples too impressive and terrible, nations have, indeed, been led into the most barbarous cruelties. But the abuse of any practice is not a good argument against its use. 
the indefatigable pains taken in this country to find out a murder, and the certainty of its punishment, has powerfully contributed to generate that sentiment which is frequent in the mouths of the common people, that a murder will sooner or later come to light, and the habitual horror in which murder is in consequence held will make a man, in the agony of passion, throw down his knife, for fear he should be tempted to use it in the gratification of his revenge. In Italy, where murderers, by flying to a sanctuary, are allowed more frequently to escape, the crime has never been held in the same detestation, and has consequently been more frequent. No man, who is at all aware of the operation of moral motives, can doubt for a moment, that if every murder in Italy had been invariably punished, the use of the stiletto in transports of passion would have been comparatively but little known. That human laws either do, or can proportion the punishment accurately to the offence, no person will have the folly to assert. From the inscrutability of motives the thing is absolutely impossible, but this imperfection, though it may be called a species of injustice, is no valid argument against human laws. It is the lot of man that he will frequently have to choose between two evils, and it is a sufficient reason for the adoption of any institution that it is the best mode that suggests itself of preventing greater evils. A continual endeavour should undoubtedly prevail to make these institutions as perfect as the nature of them will admit. But nothing is so easy as to find fault with human institutions, nothing so difficult as to suggest adequate practical improvements. It is to be lamented that more men of talent employ their time in the former occupation than in the latter. The frequency of crime among men, who, as the common saying is, no better, sufficiently proves that some truths may be brought home to the conviction of the mind without always producing the proper effect upon the conduct. There are other truths of a nature that perhaps never can be adequately communicated from one man to another. The superiority of the pleasures of intellect to those of sense, Mr. Godwin considers as a fundamental truth. Taking all circumstances into consideration, I should be disposed to agree with him. But how am I to communicate this truth to a person who has scarcely ever felt intellectual pleasure? I may as well attempt to explain the nature and beauty of colours to a blind man. If I am ever so laborious, patient, and clear, and have the most repeated opportunities of expostulation, any real progress towards the accomplishment of my purpose seems absolutely hopeless. There is no common measure between us. I cannot proceed step by step. It is a truth of a nature absolutely incapable of demonstration. All that I can say is that the wisest and best men in all ages had agreed in giving the preference, very greatly, to the pleasures of intellect, and that my own experience completely confirmed the truth of their decisions. That I had found sensual pleasures vain, transient, and continually attended with tedium and disgust, but that intellectual pleasures appeared to me ever fresh and young, filled up all my hours satisfactorily, gave a new zest to life, and diffused a lasting serenity over my mind. If he believe me, it can only be from respect and veneration for my authority. It is credulity, and not conviction. I have not said anything, nor can anything be said, of a nature to produce real conviction. The affair is not an affair of reasoning, but of experience. He would probably observe in reply, what you say may be very true with regard to yourself and many other good men, but, for my own part, I feel very differently upon the subject. I have very frequently taken up a book, and almost as frequently gone to sleep over it. But, when I pass an evening with a gay party, or a pretty woman, 
I feel alive, and in spirits, and truly enjoy my existence. Under such circumstances, reasoning and arguments are not instruments from which success can be expected. At some future time, perhaps, real satiety of sensual pleasures, or some accidental impressions that awakened the energies of his mind, might affect that, in a month, which the most patient and able expostulations might be incapable of affecting in forty years. End of chapter 13 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards